Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. In today's episode, we have a guest who has dedicated his career to empowering young people to reach for success, no matter who they are or where they come from. Dr. Kevin McDonald is an experienced administrator with a proven track record of advancing initiatives that help universities to be diverse, vibrant, and welcoming communities. He's held top roles at universities around the country, such as the University of Missouri, Rochester Institute of Technology, Virginia Tech, and now currently serves as Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Virginia. I'm excited to share a conversation with you. So Kevin, it's, it's great to have you with us. Uh, it's good to see you again and to be with you. And, uh, you know, we've known each other a little bit. Um, and certainly you've had a very impressive career at Rochester Institute of Technology, University of Central Missouri, Virginia Tech. Now you're at um, University of Virginia and really doing some very, very important work around diversity and inclusion. Um, before we talk about that, tell us a little bit more about you, about your upbringing, and you know, you, you became a lawyer early in your career. Just tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, uh, thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be with you. Really, quite an honor. Uh, I, I feel connected to the hip of Dale Carnegie, so it's been an incredible journey, and I really appreciate um, your transformative leadership as well with the organization. Um, Thank you. So I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. I was born to island parents. My father's from Jamaica. My mother's from Bermuda. I have no idea what made them settle in blustery, cold Cleveland, Ohio, but they they did. I went to Ohio State University, the Ohio State University for any Ohio State alums out there. They will never let me forget that for law school. And upon graduating law school, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. We had a family firm in East Orange, New Jersey, but and it was expected I was going to join that firm, but they were practicing uh, personal injury law and divorce law, and it just didn't resonate with me. And so I kind of became the black sheep of the family and moved to the Maryland, D.C. area. I had a cousin in medical school, fell in love with the that area and had to convince my wife to be at the time that this was the land of opportunity. And so the, the deal was if I found a job before we got married that she would move out there and if not, I had to move back to Columbus, Ohio. It took me some time, um, but I was excited. My first job that really, I think, propelled me into this diversity, equity, inclusion space was with the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, Disability Rights Section, where I investigated complaints of discrimination under the ADA for people with disabilities. But specifically, they wanted me to focus on public entities and more specifically, prison systems. And that for me, mm-hmm. eye-opening because um, I learned from many inmates that wardens didn't believe that they had rights, right? And so as a result, they didn't believe that they were, should be afforded accommodations. So to hear stories of inmates who needed wheelchair access but couldn't access the showers and had to crawl out of their wheelchairs on bacteria-filled, dirt-grime floors, put themselves in vulnerable positions by asking other inmates to turn on the shower or pass them the soap, oftentimes ex- recounting experiences of being raped. Um, to those who had tested positive for HIV, but were not afforded medical uh, attention or medical needs for them. I think for me, that just propelled me in this space and and left me feeling that this is where 
I needed to be. This is what I was called to do. And so for much of my career, it, it was really connected to the reactive realm of investigating complaints of discrimination or focusing on some level of dispute resolution. And it wasn't until I got to Virginia Tech that uh, an opportunity arose for me to also connect on the more proactive side of diversity uh, and inclusion because there was a vice president who retired from a position there in that space as a chief diversity officer. I applied for the position, got it. And kind of the rest has been history. I've been in a more proactive diversity, equity, and inclusion space, still sometimes overseeing the compliance roles as well, but also been very fortunate to kind of wake up every day with this idealistic notion of just trying to impact the lives of people uh, and processes with this work. Well, Kevin, you're someone who's really motivated by principle and about doing the right thing. And, and it's clear, you know, you were impacted in that first experience. Um, you know, what were some of the things that you took away from that experience that, that kind of shaped who you wanted to be leaving that? Yeah, part of it was that um, there is a need for advocates for the resolution of these type of issues, advocates that believed uh, to their core that um, they're discrimination should be eradicated, that we don't need to live in a world where that level of bias is recognized and formulated in the form of discriminatory acts or animus. And I was just grateful for the opportunity to want to do something with my life that would afford me the opportunity to kind of work in that space. I originally went to law school thinking I was going to be a sports and entertainment lawyer. All right, so this is a seismic shift uh, sure. from that space. But I really learned so much from hearing those stories. And on some level, Joe, I just said, look, if not me, then who? And so if you feel called to be in this space, you have to also feel called uh, to go to this work. And, you know, I have this distinction of being in a number of spaces that have had challenges. I lived through September 11th in DC. I was there for the sniper attacks. I was at Virginia Tech for the shootings. I go to University of Missouri after the Ferguson riots, right? Oh my and, gosh. And the, the protests there. And then I'm now here at the University of Virginia uh, after the riots that happened here as well in August of 2017. So I definitely have a, a, a distinctive career in that regard, but on some level it shapes who you are. And, and I'm I wouldn't change any of those experiences for anything in the world. It's helped shape me, shape who I am today. And I'm grateful for the experiences to just work in the communities that I've had the opportunity to work in. Well, you've had incredible experiences. You've seen so much in your career. Just, just go back. What, what was it that sparked you to leave where you were and to go into higher education? Because there's a lot of things you could have done. And, and from even an internal kind of leadership standpoint, what led you in the direction of higher education? It's funny, Joe. I think if my wife were here as a part of this podcast, she would say, well, Joe, that was really me. Uh, she would say that I owe my entire higher education career to her. Because oh, okay. honestly, I was working at an internet company called Network Solutions, and I was helping to resolve disputes between trademark holders and domain name registrants all over the world. So these trademark disputes between the domain name registrants who were trying to sell the domain names back um, to the trademark holders for exorbitant amounts of money. And at some point, my wife recognized that, you know, to my core, that I was really interested in these DEI issues that were arising, the investigation of complaints that came up. I did it on the level of a dis the disability community, but there was an opportunity to do that broadly defined for all aspects of areas of discrimination for a higher education institution. And, and during the time that we still looked at and looked for job opportunities in the newspaper, she found an ad uh, in the Washington Times for a compliance officer at the University of Maryland at College Park to investigate complaints of discrimination 
for 46,000 students, faculty, and staff. And at that time, it was when we were not really pouring the resources into that work. So it was only one position, one person to do that, but it was an area where I've cut my teeth and I've been in and fell in love with higher education through that experience uh, and been in it ever since. So, so talk a little bit about what the role involves. So when you talk about diversity, inclusion, and higher education, what is some of the work that you are doing in that, that role? Yeah, a lot of it is a high level of engagement with constituency to determine what the needs are. And many of that may revolve around um, recruitment and retention of diverse faculty, staff, and students, engagement with the community to determine what are the complex relationships between the institution and the town gown, and are there opportunities to bridge any gaps that exist? What is the organizational climate like? Um, and how do we enhance the perceptions of that climate to create a sense of belonging or a sense of community that can really allow employees and students to perform better? What does education and scholarship look like? Because in higher education, our goal is to graduate our students to operate as effective citizens in a global marketplace. So how do we support those efforts in the curriculum and the co-curriculum? How do we support our faculty, staff, and students in that regard? What is our institutional or organizational infrastructure like? What are our policies, our processes, our practices? And what are those things that are serving as a help or a hindrance to moving this work forward? And can we be organizationally reflective enough to be able to unpack that, to see what the narrative is, what the gaps are, and how do we fill them? Um, and then lastly is this notion, again, of community engagement. Again, how do we build any relationships between the organization and the town gown? But a lot of it in this role is based on the engagement of the constituency. And really very little power comes in the position itself. And so if you don't have the strong interpersonal communication skills, if you don't have the engagement skills um, to be able to connect with community members, to be able to be active listeners, to be able to empathize, um, seek to understand, to be able to take in constructive criticism of, about maybe how administration has operated or engaged with the community in the past. Can you be authentic? Can you be visible? Can you be present? Uh, can you not overpromise and underdeliver? Uh, a number of those things I think are prevalent. And uh, if there's any success to the role is being consistent uh, with that and not becoming intoxicated because of a title or a position uh, in your work. You've been so effective at your work and you, you've been promoted and advanced very much in your career. It, so much of that has to do with those skills that you talked about, right? Because um, such a difficult part of this role is the engagement. You're connecting people. You, you have to demonstrate those skills of active listening. And, and, and I would imagine that um, part of this is helping people understand in different points of view. So how have you developed some of those skills and what recommendations might you have for others who really want to get better at, at seeing other person's uh, another person's point of view or, or developing some of those, those skills that you have? Yeah, part of it is, um, is this recognition that research now is talking about the notion of the T-shaped professional, or even in higher education, the T-shaped graduate. So those who have the vertical discipline-specific knowledge, which we often go to get our education or we go to hone our skills in the workforce, but who often are lacking the horizontal part of that. That's those softer skills, those interpersonal communication skills, critical thinking, cross-cultural understanding skills. And I think that that is where 
um, I have not wanted to shortchange myself. I wanted to make sure that I had those in any of the roles that I possess. But I've also seen the benefit of having those or imparting that knowledge to students and to college students. And quite honestly, that's how my relationship with Dale Carnegie started. That's how we built some of the, the great work that we've been able to do between the institutions I've worked at and Dale Carnegie franchisees and some of the places that I've lived. Um, it's been built on that understanding and wanting to equip students for the workforce because we were hearing for the workforce that said, listen, these students uh, have a, a amazing discipline-specific knowledge. They are academically gifted, but many of them don't have the multicultural competencies or the interdisciplinary experiences or the interpersonal communication acumen to impact the bottom line of our organizations. So we're seeking those skill sets, right? We have organizations that are like Deloitte that are identifying what an inclusive leader looks like and communication is part of that as well as cognizance and recognizing your own bias. So I think it's just this ability to be able to be self-reflective, to be able to help and guide an organization to be organizationally reflective, but quite honestly, to be able to engage at important levels that utilize those important skill sets of conflict resolution and the like. And one of the things, Joe, that has been really helpful in my career has been connecting with two people that are engaged in work called social justice conflict resolution. And there are two people out of the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, two of the only people in the nation that are really focused on this work. Um, one is, her name is Leah Wing and the other, her name is Deepa Kamaria. But they really talk about the impact that power, that privilege, that isms can play when conflict arises and how you can, once you know that and understand that, you can have a better opportunity to resolve conflict because inherent in diversity research says it's these opportunities for conflict. Conflict is often inevitable, but often resolvable. But oftentimes, organizations and the people that make them up are extremely conflict averse. And so for me, that's been one of the things that I've been connected with them since 1999, but every organization I've been a part of, I've introduced them to them to basically impart those same skill sets and tools to help faculty, staff, and students, alumni, even local community members who are coming to their spaces with their lived experiences and perspectives of the world with these tools, equipping them with the tools to navigate those daily interactive experiences. So, so let me ask you a little bit about those tools that you're talking about, as well as tools that you seek to give others, because you and I first, uh, I first heard about you and came to know you through the MOCA program that you started, um, which is one of the most impressive um, programs I've seen of its kind anywhere. In fact, I um, was in a Wegman store in Rochester, New York, where I met a young man who was in the MOCA program. He told me about it, and I was blown away by um, the opportunity that he said that it created uh, for him. You started that program. Talk a little bit about the MOCA program and, and some of the skills that you impart to the, the young people in that program. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, the MOCA program has been this labor of love for me, Joe. I'm an only child from East Cleveland, Ohio. And on some level, selfishly, it was everything I wish I had in college but didn't. Um, I was also at a, a part of a community in Rochester, New York, where Rochester right now is first in the nation in concentrated poverty. When I was there, it was number two. Graduation rates during the time that I was there were 42%, but only 5 and 9% for African-American and Latino males. Um, for me, it felt that there was an opportunity to do something about it. And for any of those students that came to Rochester Institute of Technology, particularly from the city, um, 
we were excited about the fact that there was a full tuition program to support them, but their GPAs at the time were averaging around a 2.36. So I remember asking the president at the time, what do we do for the students once they get here? And we hadn't given that much thought um, to those experiences. So it was at that same time that we were thinking about that program that I said, there has to be something that we can do about that. And we were also looking at student success data that was showing us that women were outperforming men, that this was a growing trend as it relates to academic performance, persistence, and graduation. And the university wanted to create an overarching male initiative. But I also thought it had special implications for young men of color at a predominantly white institution. And so I just researched what was happening nationally, came up with an idea, pitched it to the president, and MOCA was born. And it was really based on exposure. It was based on how do we ultimately provide these supportive pillars that can prepare these young men that will build up their self-efficacy, their confidence in themselves that will allow them to take on the world when they graduate. And that's really what we did. We shared and exposed them to everything from personal finance to personal branding to networking to health and wellness. On any given day, they could take golf instruction or CrossFit or heated yoga, wine and culinary skills. We worked with them in the community because there was this notion of brain drain and them graduating and leaving uh, the community there that they were connected to. But quite honestly, and, and this um, is not just because we're on the phone, you know, on this Zoom, this Zoom call together, but the number one factor for the success of the program was our partnership with Dale Carnegie. The Rochester franchise there, people like Clark Merrill and Ursel Charles were so giving of their time and their talents to be able to impact a program that was open regardless of race or ethnicity, but then just created through the lens of young men of color to just impact the lives of these young men. They were going, when they graduated, 100% graduation rate, they were going to companies like Google and Intel and Apple, J.P. Morgan Chase, Disney even flew me out. They were having such an impact that I started getting contact and calls from these companies and said, look, these young men are coming and they're outperforming our first year associates. It's not even close. Uh, it doesn't matter if they, the first year associates came from an Ivy League or not. They come in with their self-efficacy. They come in with an understanding of our organization. Their interpersonal communication skills are off the charts. Their ability to engage with our stakeholders are tremendous. But the other deciding piece for this is that at the end of the experience, if they participated at a high level, we partnered with the local clothier and they got a tailor-made suit, shirt, tie and shoes. So they also looked the part. Um, and that was, uh, it, it was just amazing to see. I still get calls. I connect with many of them monthly just to hear their experiences and where they've gone. Some are starting venture capitalist firms. Some are, some are in Saudi Arabia wanting, wanting to work for Dale Carnegie International, right? And so it's amazing to just see the impact, but Dale Carnegie has been tremendous. So for me, the communication aspects um, of this work um, translate into not just my own role, but to those that I can impart the support uh, and pour into and MOCA program is one aspect of that. When I joined the organization in 2015, um, my first visit, this is in May, before I even started really full time, I went to visit uh, Herb and Doug up in Rochester. And they took me to a Wegmans and I met this young man who told me about, that's the first time I heard about MOCA and about the impact it had on his life. And, and you know, he was, you know, he, he was um, confident and strong and determined and articulate, you know, and, and he, he said, you know, before I took the Dale Carnegie program, before I joined MOCA, 
um, you know, I had a lot of challenges. It really helped set them on the right track. It's a program that should be um, a universal program. It really should be. It can make a lot of difference in, you know, so many, so many lives. So Yeah, and I owe a lot of it to um, just the collaborative spirit of Ursel and Clark and uh, Doug and Herb. They've been really just wonderful. Melissa Campos, they just did an amazing people to work with, and many of them just giving of their own personal time because they believe in the impact. And, and they see these young men whose lives have been changed forever. This, that young man at, at Wegmans, I believe, was probably this young man that I remember by the name of Devin Purdy, and just amazing to see. He, he contacted me and said, I just want you to know I got married, you know? And just, I mean, to, to just share that uh, aspect of his life with me. And many of them will say, I just want to let you know, thank you for uh, thank you for the MOCA program. Thank you for pouring into me because it has been life altering, life changing. Uh, I will never be the same. And I have a young man that I may have mentioned uh, in, in passing, but he took, he's taken the program, gone on to do great things, gone on to Tufts for graduate school and said, I just want you to know, I'm going to be starting a, a venture capitalist firm uh, to support the uh, entrepreneurial interests of African-American and the Latinx community. And it's just amazing that he's, he said, we, we have a, such a short, a great need of that, but such a shortage of organizations, particularly venture capitalist firms engaged in that. And just, I mean, it's just far beyond anything that I would have fathomed. But, um, but a lot of that, uh, and I'm always unapologetic in saying this, I don't know if MOCA would be MOCA uh, without Dale Carnegie. And so I, I, I'm just incredibly grateful um, to the organization, I'm incredibly grateful for uh, the vision, for the creativity of, of imparting this important knowledge uh, to youth. Uh, and we say the youth of our future, but we often don't invest in them the way that Dale Carnegie has, and we've seen the fruits of that investment. And so I'm really grateful for that. So any anything that I can do to promote it and 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 to promote it with Dale Carnegie, I'm that's part of our biggest investment is through Dale Carnegie, but I'm unapologetic. And I told the president here that we're going to invest and we're giving Dale Carnegie to middle schoolers. And I'm like, we have to do it. Um, but I just think it's incredibly important. And the parents to see their parents here, their faces light up in the community that has uh, increased poverty as a number of things that are, have stricken this community. But to know that we're going to invest in these young people just brightens, brightens it there. So I'm excited about it. So, so Kevin, you, you moved from uh, Rochester Institute of Technology to University of Central Missouri, and I understand you took the MOCA program there. Is that right? Yeah. So the entire University of Missouri system is made of 75,000 students, 17,000 staff, 6,000 faculty. My argument was, gosh, if it worked for an institution, could it work throughout an entire system? So we utilized the program there. We added in a historically black university in Lincoln University. And then I just pitched this notion of, well, if it worked for these collegiate students could have worked in high school. So then we started a pilot program in Columbia High School for the MOCA and WOCA programs, and we saw the GPAs of all the participants go up. So then we said, well, let's try this in Kansas City. And we did, and we saw the GPAs go up. We actually saw a young man who said, look, I'm, I actually don't even want to be engaged in any of the gang activity that are in my neighborhoods because this program means so much to me. And then we saw that we had other counties that wanted to take it on as well, other school districts. So we moved it to Jefferson City. So it's been amazing here in Charlottesville. And, and to your point and kind of taking charge, uh, Joe, one of the things I try to do for in my work is I look for gaps and just try to fill them. Um, and so when I came to Charlottesville, 
one of the gaps that the community members identified was this gap in middle school. So we've actually started the Mocha and Woka program in middle school here because there's this notion that when students complete in the Charlottesville City Schools, the elementary school, many of the parents take their students out because they feel as though the educational disparities at the middle school are so great that they don't want to subject their children to that and then we'll bring them back to the city schools for high school. So we wanted to try to fill that void and put our resources uh, into that. And so the president believes enough in this MOCA initiative as well that we're committing our own University of Virginia resources to support that initiative at the middle school and at the high school level here in Charlottesville. So, so Kevin, now you're at the uh, University of Virginia, uh, you know, tremendous school. And um, what excites you most about your work at the University of Virginia or your goals today? Part of it for me is driven by the support of leadership. There's a tremendous president at the University of Virginia. Jim Ryan is just an amazing leader. I think he's thoughtful, uh, he's connected, he's driven, he cares about diversity, equity, inclusion work, he cares about people, the constituency that he serves. Um, and I think he provides me with the latitude I need to be creative and innovative in this space. You know, when, you, when you're a leader and you're passionate about the work that you have, and I live in this idealistic space, as I said before, of wanting to wake up every day to just try to impact the lives of people, you recognize to do that, you need this creative latitude to succeed and fail with the goal of just having more successes and failures. So first and foremost, I, I appreciate his supportive leadership in allowing me to do that. The other thing that I think is really important is that the University of Virginia is at a critical juncture in its own journey as an institution because it has a very complex history with its own notion of utilization of enslaved laborers to build the university of the enslaved laborers of the enslaved who used to be in the community in Charlottesville. So that in and of itself brings its own level of complexity as the university reflects on its history and wants to move forward in a way um, that is both reflective of that history and utilizes it to move forward in, in supportive ways of the community, both in acknowledgement of it, but also engaging the community in ways that they deem most appropriate. So I'm dealing with this work in a very different way, right? The community has these pores of receptivity that have been opened after the incidents that happened here in 2017. And so they really wanna move forward in a way that's collaborative in, as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. But on some level, we're thinking about what does that mean? What does that look like? Some of that is connected to notions of how do we move forward in the standpoint of, of a strategic way? How are we ultimately, and how can we engage in a way that develops an overarching strategic framework that can guide our work? And so that's a lot of where my efforts have been um, at this juncture is to help create a strategic framework based on some of the areas that I explained to you before, but this goal of inclusive excellence that in an unprecedented fashion has been adopted at the state government level by the governor. So for me, again, looking for gaps and filling them, we know that there has never been a state that has established an inclusive excellence type of framework, a strategic diversity framework in our history across the entire state. And that's what we've done here during my time. And it's built off the work that we've done at University of Virginia. So I'm excited about that. The heavy lifting is, is ahead of us now, but, and it's definitely been interrupted by this pandemic, but, um, but I'm excited as well about what the future holds. Well, that, that's terrific. And it sounds like you really have a unique opportunity given all the things you, you just talked about. I'd just like to go back for a second because part of what you said, what I think I heard you said, uh, makes that possible is the kind of supportive leadership environment. You know, basically you're being encouraged. Talk a little bit about that because part of what I think is really important to our listeners is um, 
you know, in what ways can I be a more effective leader? What are some of the things that you've learned from effective leaders that, um, that maybe you'd want to share? Uh, I think for me, um, effective leadership is often connected to a few things. Some of those things I've said before, but for me, um, being able to engage and actually work with other leaders who are also supportive of your work, supportive of who you are in the role that you have. And there are oftentimes that, at least in the diversity, equity, inclusion space, you can be viewed as the, on the margins, right? This notion of, if that's a moral imperative, we're doing that to just do the right thing. But ultimately this notion of being supportive as a leader, because you recognize its importance in the role of making the organization better. So I think that in and of itself is incredibly important. I'm appreciative of being with a leader who isn't conflict averse, who recognizes that conflict is gonna arise and being able to kind of meet that conflict directly in a way that still seeks to understand the different positions that exist but recognizes that there is going to be conflict and, and encourages, you know, a level of dialogue to help ultimately resolve that conflict. One who is seeking creative ideas and lives in this space that we're only limited by our own creativity. And so this notion of being able to, again, provide that latitude for those who are part of the organization to be innovative and creative as a part of a supportive leader. Those who are not ultimately identifying employees uh, from a standpoint of symbolism. So in my role, it would be great. We have the diversity box checked because we have someone in that role, um, but we're really not truly invested in doing work that's going to ultimately move this needle that is going to force us to really look at data disaggregated or ask in very reflective ways questions that will basically caused us to go through some level of introspection or organizational reflection, right? So I, I appreciate the leadership opportunities for myself, but also those in leadership who have been really supportive of me in those incredibly important ways. And then the last thing that I will say is we often talk about the importance of engagement, but we don't ultimately allow our actions to match that rhetoric. And I think if you ultimately are key and committed to being a, a transformative leader, you have to engage with those that you serve with those that are a part of your organization. Some say, you know, I think there's a book that says, why should others want to be led by you, right? And so this notion, if you don't provide them with anything to follow, then can you truly be a leader? And I think on some level, engagement is critically important to that. And these are all principles I know that are foundational to Dale Carnegie, but there are still many leaders that this is a, an Achilles heel that they don't have or they're uncomfortable with leaning into. And I think they're incredibly important in this space. Yeah, they, they really are. In fact, when we look at and we survey even from a research standpoint, things that drive people to want to give their best to a leader, a lot of times, I mean, the things that you touched on, being an authentic leader, someone who cares, someone who listens, someone who's willing to admit that they make a mistake, someone who um, ties to a vision. And, and clearly, what you've talked about at the University of Virginia and at other points of your career are people who've supported um, your passion you know, really to make a difference in the lives of, of people and communities. So um, let me ask you, Kevin, you talked a little bit about Dale Carnegie. How do you think Dale Carnegie is changing the narrative of young people in the workforce? Yeah. Um, it's, so I will tell you this quote that a student said after going through the Dale Carnegie course, and I, I never had the heart to even tell the president of the University of Rochester Institute of Technology, but he said, you know, I came to RIT to get an education, but I didn't start learning until I went through the Dale Carnegie course. To me, that was as impactful as any statement that you could say, because that ultimately allowed this young man to see 
the benefits of the importance of strong interpersonal communication skills in almost every aspect of his personal and professional life. And these were individuals who shared, who unpacked themselves in front of each other that um, let go of the masculine kind of stigmas that were there, um, who really came of age. And I think Dale Carnegie really imparts incredibly important skills. Let me tell you, Joe, I myself was a bit skeptical when I said, gosh, you know, this is something that we utilize for C-suite executives often. Uh, how is this going to impact the lives of young people? We didn't know until we tried. But some of the young people that went through it said, like, I can't even imagine entering my first year of college uh, having not had this course. This has been transformative in my life. I am thinking about things differently. I'm thinking about my own life. I'm thinking about my trajectory. I'm thinking about my relationships. I'm thinking about my internships. Um, differently. I think Dale Carnegie is incredibly important. I, I think um, I think Dale Carnegie uh, can be transformative in even probably so many additional ways because it's been, I've seen it in action. I've seen the impact that it's had. And in fact, I wouldn't utilize Dale Carnegie until I went through the courses myself, right? And so being able to go through uh, giving high impact presentations or your foundational course to being led by and trained by some of the masters uh, who are, are providing those Dale Carnegie masters who are providing the education. I, I knew then and there that this is something that was not only just going to benefit me as an, uh, an uh, someone who I felt was an accomplished leader, but it would definitely benefit these students. And that's why, quite honestly, Joe, I said, if I can get this, not only to college students, that's great. But if I could get this to high school students and then say, look, if you come to this school, I can get it to you again in college. Like how, how better prepared are you going to be for the world? You're going to rock and roll in ways that you're going to blow away the competition. And that's how incredibly essential I think the skills that Dale Carnegie imparts to those who participate are. Uh, so I, again, I, um, I have lifelong friends now in Dale Carnegie, but quite honestly, Dale Carnegie has lifelong champions who have gone through uh, the Dale Carnegie course. I am one of the strongest advocates as I go into higher education because, you know, in higher education, you already have a number of faculty who consider themselves experts in a number of areas, including communication. Uh, and I continue to advocate. In fact, we provided not only now for the students, but at the University of Missouri, uh, throughout the entire system, we built it into the staff education. And the staff has said this has been one of the most transformative workshops I have ever gone through in my life. Thank you for bringing this to the University of Missouri. So we know that it's transforming lives. So I, I, I could go on. I'm a poster uh, child and poster board for Dale Carnegie because I've seen it firsthand uh, and, and I've seen it have a transformational impact. Well, thank you for sharing your experience around that, Kevin. And, uh, and by the way, certainly I've seen you present and you're a fantastic presenter. So to think that Dale Carnegie had any part of that, of, of how strong you are, uh, is, is, a, is a great, uh, great thing. Um, you, you've interacted with and met so many people over the course of your career. What's a really good piece of advice? Someone who gave you some great advice that you live by today. Well, share that with us if you would. Yeah. Um, I think one of those that I had shared with me from a former supervisor at Johns Hopkins University is to remember that adversity is inevitable and you are going to go through challenges in your life, no matter how smooth uh, of a sailing you've had thus far. But to always remember that those setbacks are often just setups for comebacks. Right? And, and, and for 
you to recognize that you have to be able to lean into that discomfort, to learn from the experience, to be able to grow from it. Don't lament, don't lay in a fetal position somewhere uh, with a woe is me attitude. But to remember adversity is gonna come. I've had it um, in my own life. I remember at 16, my family and I being evicted from our homes and that welling up this desire in me to see how do I prevent this experience from happening again? How do I learn as I was in a roach infested red roof inn for six months kind of contemplating my life as a 16 year old high school student, um, also navigating my own kind of social interactive experience with other students wondering why I wasn't at the same high school. I went to three different high schools, you know, in, in the span of four years. And so, um, so it, it's something for me that adversity, this notion of conflict, of adversity, of, 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 of stumbles that happen and they at, at the end wanting to be measured by your gallop and not your stumble, but this recognition that those stumbles are gonna come are probably something that's central to my work. And, and oftentimes when I connect with students who are having a wonderful experience, it's just to let them know, be prepared so that you're not rocked to your core when that adversity comes. Expect that it's gonna come, but it's what you do in the face of that adversity that will ultimately define who you will ultimately become. And I think for me, that's one of the big driving forces for the work that I do. That's awesome, Kevin. And in, in advice that is especially applicable right now with all that's happening in the world, there is very significant adversity and very significant pain and many setbacks. And at the same time, you know, we're going to get through this. And at some point, we're going to look back and we'll say, how do we, how do we handle that? Do we rise to the occasion? Do we demonstrate courage and confidence? How do we handle that? What do we learn? And uh, really a great uh, piece of, of advice for us. So thank you. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been awesome to see you uh, as always and uh, look forward to uh, talking with you again. Thanks so much for the time, Joe. You take care. Thank you too. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, the Dale Carnegie podcast. Leading in today's workplace is increasingly challenging. Dale Carnegie offers online instructor-led training on virtual meetings, virtual team leadership, and more. You can enhance your skills today by visiting dalecarnegie.com and browsing our live online training sessions. This episode was recorded by Praytel Agency, and please consider rating this episode and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.